This week on Mike Coscarelli Rules. Have the Grammys been the best pandemic award show? Are millennials killing social traditions? And Dr. Thomas Whitfield is here to discuss how to take care of your mental health during the pandemic. That's a tease. And this is Mike Coscarelli Rules. He is so cute. (laughs) Mike Coscarelli. Mike Coscarelli. (laughs) Mike Coscarelli is here as well. He's the producer for this failing fucking radio show. A big hand for Mike something Italian. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Mike Coscarelli Rules. I, of course, am your host, the one and only failed comedian, Mike Coscarelli. So happy that you're joining me again for another episode of this silly little podcast that we do. The light at the end of the tunnel continues to get a little bit brighter here. Very excited to see that. Lots of people that I know are starting to get their vaccine, which is good. My mom, my sisters, they both got it. So that means I can happily go home for Easter uh, in a couple weeks, which is, by the way, if you guys are not religion aside, I'm not really, I would not consider myself particularly Catholic anymore, but very few holidays are as popping in an Italian household as Easter. Easter is the day to eat. That is like the food holiday. Um, I know you might think it would be Christmas, Christmas Eve, we do the seven fishes, whatever. My mom goes balls to the wall uh, on Easter with the spread. Eggplant parm, uh, you know, beautiful antipasts. I can't wait. And last year we didn't get to have it because shit was so crazy with the coronavirus. Uh, And now that everybody in my house is pretty much vaccinated, except for me, um, it looks like we're going to be able to do it this year, which is cool. A uh, couple notes, couple things to talk about real quick before we get into the um, into the the interview. No production piece again, but I'll, I'll tell you what, guys. I don't know. I, I have some feedback. A lot of people have liked the stuff that we've done so far. There's way more fun stuff coming and interesting things and better stories to be told in the in the coming weeks. I am rounding out this big project that's been eating up all of my time. I have one week left of it. I, I'm literally at the finish line. We have one more shitty week where the show is going to be late and probably and all that stuff. And then we're back full steam. Mike Coscarelli rules. We don't even have Ronnie this week. She went out to the fucking woods somewhere. She's out in California living this hippie lifestyle. Um, so she's been off the grid for the last couple of days. So it's just me. It's, I did this whole thing by myself this week. Isn't that crazy? All this, how can something sound so fabulous and only come from the mind of one person mind in the hands of one person? It's pretty amazing. I know we have a great guest this week. He's going to be on in a second. Tommy Whitfield, Dr. Thomas Whitfield, excuse me. He's my friend, Tommy Whitfield, but he's now a, uh, a therapist, uh, and are seemingly a really good one. He's a very smart guy. This is this might be. I hate to say this because I hate to. They're all my children. All of these interviews and all of these these episodes so far. But Tommy was good. Tommy's really good. There's some elements of self help in this interview, which, by the way, I am usually against. But Tommy does it in a way that doesn't make me feel like he's selling me something, which is good. He's such a smart guy. He's a funny guy. Uh, and he's overall, he's just a great hang. As, as a guy that I've hung out with for a lot of years, being around New York City um, and around the comedy scene, he's not a comedian, but he's comedy adjacent because he's tight with Corinne. And, and um, you know, through that, he and I have become pretty tight. He's great. Uh, you're going to love this interview, especially if you have any issues with... Uh, mental health problems, if you have anxiety or if you are prone to depression or if you've just kind of been having a hard time during this entire pandemic, this is a great episode to listen to because Tommy has a lot of answers to a lot of questions uh, that you might need solved. Uh, He's a smart guy and he does a really good job of 
of kind of uh, helping put some things in perspective in terms of mental health and how we're dealing with it in the pandemic. So that's really good. Before we get into that, a couple of things I saw this week, uh, talking again about this light at the end of the tunnel and how it's getting brighter. March Madness is back. Another thing that we missed last year, kind of forgot that we missed the entire thing. Uh, I know most of you listening are probably women, uh, given that's who my audience is. I completely understand. Um, I'm curious to know who your boyfriend's picked to win it all. Uh, I have Gonzaga winning it all. They're undefeated. Uh, I have Florida going pretty far. I'm watching that game right now as I record this. They're not looking great. Uh, I think I have them in the elite eight. If they lose, I'm fucked. And I just lost this uh, money that I gambled with that I don't really have as I, you know, as you know, I'm unemployed, but, uh, hopefully that, uh, works out for me, but it's fun to have this thing back. Uh, March madness overall, these things, man, I, I don't think that we fully understand how much we need these things to feel normal. Ceremony is an extremely important thing. Ceremony and tradition, uh, I feel like my generation has been one of the first generations in a really long time to actively try to strip away at things that have been traditional for a really long time. Um, when you look at anything, when you look at weddings, if you look at even the history of this country, um, my opinion aside, I think that there has been a, a concerted effort to sort of, I don't want to say rewrite history because you can never really rewrite history, but there are some things that we're sort of trying to um, move on from and forget about. And perhaps in some aspects of the society that we live in, that might be a good thing. You know, there are old holidays where we honor people that might not have necessarily been the best people. Maybe we pivot out of that and we we try to find some people that are historic, but still a little more relatable to our generation. You know, for example, Christopher Columbus Day is like one of the, one of the big ones. Uh, the tradition around Columbus Day was really that it was the Italian holiday. And as an Italian person, I don't think that we should lose an Italian holiday, but Christopher Columbus is a real piece of shit historically. Um, and that seems to really be indisputable at this point. And, and even as an Italian person who would love to have an Italian day, maybe it is time to get rid of that. That's a tradition that could go. But what would we replace that with? Let's not get rid of the day where we honor Italian people or Italian Americans. Replace it with another with an Italian American that's done more good. I, I've said it. I think I've said it on this podcast before. Frank Sinatra Day. Fuck it. Cultural icon, civil rights leader at, at, in some degrees. He was one of the uh, the first uh, entertainers of his stature to be actively, uh, proactively against segregation. Wouldn't play at casinos or venues um, where black acts were not treated equally um, at a time when that was sort of a controversial stance to take as a white entertainer or a white performer. Uh, he's got some womanizing in there. That's a, that, you know, you can argue that that might not be the best thing, but Hey, uh, it's better than Columbus who slaughtered a whole bunch of native Americans. Um, all Frank Sinatra did was slaughter that pussy. So, but I, I'm using this example just to say that I, I think that, I think that we need to get to a place where we can sort of balance some sort of tradition with, um, making these traditions and rituals our own. Weddings, great example. A wedding really exists. I mean, it's archaic when you really think about what a wedding stands for and what it means. In theory, you are, it, it, you know, as a, as, a, as a father, a man, you are giving your daughter to another man. That's really a huge aspect of where the tradition stems from. Here, now you have my daughter. She belongs to you, young man. Um, 
you know, that's not really what the wedding is anymore. On top of that, it's not, it has nothing to do with uh, virginity at this point, you know, a, a bride wearing white, um, you know, white of virgin color. It really has nothing to do with what this ceremony is at this point. A wedding, if we're being honest, is a, is a uh, combining of two um, uh, incomes for two people that like each other enough to want to be companions for the rest of their lives. Uh, and what it means has sort of changed. And I think that from a, a ritual standpoint, it's very important. It's something to be excited for. And I, I do think that if this year has shown us anything, we need these things. Has there been anything more miserable than spending a year where you just sort of wake up, work, exist, wait around for the next day with nothing really to look forward to until the summer came and you could go outside and go take a hike or do whatever you wanted to do. It, it, it's, a, uh, it's a miserable way to exist. So birthdays, holidays, uh, events, these are things that we need in, in some capacity. And um, when we lost March Madness last year, that was one of the first big time events. Granted, it's not a wedding. Uh, I, I get it. And it's not Columbus Day. But the point being, it is a, it's a, a huge cultural event that we lost. And it's good to have stuff, something like that back. Uh, these award shows, uh, another great example. They're important in the sense that, first off, it marks a certain time of year. You know, you know, you know when the Oscars are, you know when the Golden Globes and the Emmys and the Grammys and all that stuff are. It sort of helps remind you uh, what day it is, what month it is, what time of the year it is. Oscar season is a season for a reason. Um, did not mean to rhyme that, but hey. Happened anyway. When they're done well, they're fun. The Oscars can be a little stuffy. I think the Oscars this year are going to be bad because there's really not been a whole lot of movies. I will say, though, I watched the gr- parts of the Grammys the other night. The Grammys, a lot of fun. I think music is finally, we're in a, 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 a place where music's really good. You have a lot of musicians who were sort of, um, you know, pop acts early on in their career that are really, that are really coming into their own. I love I love this new Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack song, and they performed it at the Grammys. It was fucking amazing. I can't wait for that Silk Sonic album to come out. I think it's going to be awesome. It has that like '70s soul kind of sound. I hope the whole album is like that. I'm I am so excited for that thing to come out, and they did a great job performing it. Um, those girls from the from uh, those girls from Heim did a, a great performance. Harry Styles is becoming like a, a cool performer. I, I really fuck with him a lot. Uh, you know, and, and a lot of these people, they started out as younger acts and they weren't necessarily, you know, you have less control over your music. You have less influence on what you want to do. And now that some of these people are coming into their own, they're making really awesome music that they just want to make. Bruno Mars is a big enough. He could make, he could fart into a microphone for, for 65 minutes and release that as an album. They'll still be able to sell it. So when you have that kind of juice, you can make awesome music, and hopefully that's what these guys are starting to do now. Uh, there was another band that I had, I just heard about that apparently they've been around for uh, a couple years. Black Pumas, so good, little uh, bluesy influence type of band, awesome, great performance. Um, so the Grammys is cool. It's one of these award ceremonies that I think still works uh, even in the the pandemic era because they had all the. Uh, acts sort of in a room together. It was kind of awesome that you have, you get shots of, you see Harry Styles singing this Black Puma song again, which I had never heard, but you can, it's nice to see that these musicians are fans of these other musicians that are playing. 
Um, I think that's awesome. I think that's how they should do the Grammys from now on. Leave the fucking fuck the the live audience and the overproduced. Put them in a room where they're just like hanging out together. That would be way more fun to to have this just like big old jam, uh, almost like they would do in like a like a show for musicians that are coming up. If you go see a bill in, in New York City, if you go to pianos in the Lower East Side or something like that, you might see a couple different bands and they're swapping in and out. It, it's cool to feel like you're part of the scene. All right, I'm gonna stop rambling. Dr. Thomas Whitfield is coming up in a second. This is the last you're gonna hear from me in this segment. Please, if you haven't already, go rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, tell a friend. That's how we get to the next level. We're all in this together, man. We're all in this together. Make me a million dollars so I can... Keep giving you just fantastic content. It's, that's all I ask of you people. Just make me a millionaire. That's it. That's not that hard. If you want to get in contact with the show, you can find me on social media at Mike Coscarelli on Instagram and Twitter. You can also email the show, coscrules at gmail.com, C-O-S-C-R-U-L-E-S at gmail.com. Appreciate you listening. I'll see you on the other side in just a few seconds. Welcome back to Mike Coscarelli Rules. Very excited for this next guest. He's been a pal of mine for quite some time. Uh, he has been around the New York City comedy scene for a really long time. Even Probably the most involved person in the scene who isn't a comedian really in any capacity, but he is kind of a funny guy. Uh, I'm joined now by my buddy therapist, Dr. Thomas Whitfield. I'm going to call him Tommy. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. It's so That is funny because I do... Um, because my best friend is a comedian, there have often been nights where I've just hopped with her from like stand-up show to stand-up show to stand-up show, which yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize how much the con- like I if I didn't know someone that did comedy, like I would have no clue. But no. you guys like go out and do four or five shows in a night where yeah. it's just like going up for eight minutes, ten minutes, seven minutes, whatever. And it's just like there's this whole scene in New York of people just like jumping from one to the other. So I've gotten to know a good amount of people, even though I know essentially nothing about stand-up or comedy. How long is until you're the go-to comedy therapist? Do you think that that's on the horizon? Got it, no, right? I hope no? never. I hope never. <laughs> Y'all are are kind of a special breed, and yeah. uh, I don't have experience helping those people. That's not true, Tommy. <laughs> You've given me so much free therapy over the last five years; it's insane. I like that I just referred to comedians as those people. I just marginalized <laughs> them. No, they, if anybody needs to be marginalized, it's comedians based in New York City. Trust me. Um, I mean, a, you know, I would say that a lot of the comedians that I've met um, that strike me as, you know, could maybe benefit from some therapy uh, tend to be just really stubborn in their thinking. And it's like, that's actually something that comes across with a lot of patients and maybe comedians are just more um, upfront about it, but just this stubbornness in thinking of like, this is how it is and I am correct and I can't do anything about it and fuck everything else. I'm right. <laughs> and I, I feel like I see that a lot specifically with male comedians. Sure. I, yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, I'm assuming given all the people that you hang out with or have hung out with through, you know, like our, our mutual friends and, and stuff like that. 
how often are you around people you're just like man oh man that guy has got to see somebody that is a that's a textbook narcissist or that's a textbook you know that person's got some things they got to work through uh so not not so i don't generally like prescribe something like that to someone of oh they need a therapist yeah I, i really believe that the people that need therapists are the people that want to see a change hmm lot of people that <laughs> bitch and moan about stuff like, don't. don't actually want to change they just want to bitch and moan about it right uh, there have been a, a good amount of people that i've met that i'm just like wow they're a lot mm-hmm. but if they don't have an issue with with themselves being a lot or they don't have an issue with seeing how them being a lot is impacting their life then why go to a therapist yeah i mean it makes it doesn't make a lot of sense but is there do you think that there is any um is there any benefit to being the type of person that goes to a therapist and sort of gets it off their chest? And I, I don't want to say that that might not be helpful for people because there's been times I've been going to therapy and I've been open about it for three years, probably roughly. I, I kind of stopped seeing my therapist because I got fucking fired, but like I, I plan to go again once I. Wait, I your got... therapist fired you or your <laughs> no, job no, 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 fired no. you? And you didn't <laughs> have insurance to get your therapist. That one. It was that one. Because either could happen. I, <laughs> I, know. I have I have fired patients before to put fired in quotes. Yeah, well, I've if I feel like at a certain point, if you're if you're seeing somebody and they're not making a change, they what good are you to them? And it's not your fault, obviously, but like some people just can't really um, put it all together and make those changes. So at a certain point, it's like, you're going for a year, you haven't taken one step forward. Why are you in therapy? Like, well, or, or it's just the type of therapy that I do is different than what that person is looking for. Mm. Um, so for example, I specialize in cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay. A lot of people have no idea what that means. A lot of people go to their therapist for years and years and have no idea what method their therapist is. They have no idea. So (laughs) for example, you just said like, I go and I get things off my chest. Yeah. I don't have any patients that come to me and just get things off their chest. Okay. Like every, (laughs) every one of my patients, I have specific goals specific things that we are working towards. And that's one of the things that's different about cognitive behavioral therapy versus a lot of other like interpersonal therapies or psychodynamic therapy is that we have an agenda. So at the beginning of every one of my sessions, we go over uh, briefly in like 30 seconds, like what we talked about in the last session, the person had homework or something to work on between sessions. We talk about how that went. We set the agenda for the session. And then we move through the agenda. We prioritize it. We move through it. Sometimes we get caught up in things. Sometimes we don't make it all the way through the agenda, but that's why we prioritize it. So when I do therapy, like my sessions are 45 minutes and they are jam packed. Like we have things that we are doing and this is perfect for my personality because I'm a real doer. I'm I was going to say this. Control yeah, freak. <laughs> yeah, this makes a, a perfect sense from everything I know about you, Tommy. <laughs> and, and that's why I'm good at don't this type time, of therapy. Don't waste time. Line things up. Let's get fucking get some work done. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I do have patients that, you know, at times will need to get things off their chest, so to speak. And like, I make room for that. You know, we also allow that to happen. Like shit comes up, people need to process stuff. We can work through it. But at the end of the day, like I don't have people that just come in and I'm like, so what's on your mind? And listen, like, like, no, we're, we're doing something active if we wanted to see change. So that may not be everybody's cup of tea. So some people don't want that. Some people want to come in and just vent and get stuff off their chest. And that's good for them. 
I'm not the person for you. Right. I, I think that there are, um, speaking from experience of my therapist, I had, I got to a point where me getting fired, I, honestly, at the beginning of this year, it was such a cleansing experience because I got rid of this job that I hated, even though it was like, I got fired, but it was it was pretty mutual. I think by the end of it, we were ready for us to just part, you know? And because of that, I lost my health insurance and I lost the steady income. So I was paying out of pocket for my therapist, but I couldn't afford to keep paying her what I was paying her once, once a week, you know? But the issue was also at a certain point, she was this sweet older lady who was absolutely sort of a motherly figure. And I had had three years of a relationship with her where I think she knew me. She knew, um, she knew my whole story. She knew she knew so much about me that I think it got to a point where she wasn't fully helping me anymore. Does that make sense? Like mm-hmm. it got to a point where she I don't know that she was she was getting to a point where she wasn't as much of a um uh a neutral party because she was sort of like my another mom in a lot of sense, like wanted the best for me or whatever. But I think I got into a pattern with, you know, the ending of my last relationship where I wasn't taking a lot of steps forward. And I I would go into the office with her every week and sort of talk out this breakup. But then I would keep making mistakes. We, I had this really bad backslide with my ex in, um, I guess it was right around Thanksgiving, maybe. Um, and it just like it ripped it, it just like ripped the band-aid back off. Whatever I had had, like whatever progress I had made was gone it, mm-hmm. instantly, you know? And I kept having these conversations with my therapist where I was like, I think I still want to get back together with her, and I don't know. Whatever. And I know that therapists are kind of supposed to let you do the work, but I feel like Tommy's Thomas Whitfield doesn't let that happen. <laughs> I feel like Tommy's like, okay, you've talked to me about this woman for two years now uh, and how horrible she is to you and how much you hate this relationship. So why are you going to go and backslide and get back into this relationship with this girl? Yeah, I, no, that's I probably feel like exactly that's, what I would say. Like, right. I'm very direct with my patients <laughs> yeah, yeah. and I'm not telling them what to do, but I would probably say something like, you've been going back and forth with this for two years. It seems like you're really unhappy with it. Every time you think about leaving, you then think about staying. Every time you, you think about staying, you think about leaving. So you're just going back and forth. You're playing ping pong with yourself. Somebody's got to make a choice here. Uh And what, and what you're asking me for is either to tell you what it is that's going to make you happy, or you want me to be able to give you some sort of a guarantee that you're going to be happy. And I can't do that. Right, right. And I think I needed that. And it's unfortunate because I loved my therapist and we had that, we were getting to that relationship where it was like, she was like a maternal figure in my life, but that almost became kind of like um, counterintuitive for having a therapist because she kind of wasn't, you know, checking me the way that she needed to, where where she would just be like, listen, you like two years of this, you got to stop. Like no more of this, you know, where... You know, again, it's my decision to make, but I really, once a week, I needed somebody to be like, this is a reminder you've been unhappy. <laughs> like, like, stop doing the thing that makes you unhappy. You keep, you know, you made so, so much progress and now you're fucking falling back into this mistake. So I think that that is, 
I know there's different types of therapy that works for different types of people, but if you're the type of person that I am, I think you need somebody to be stern with you sometimes and be like, stop it, dude. Fucking a little slap on the wrist. Don't, don't keep doing this bad behavior. Make, make some progress, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that, I, I think that there's a way for both cognitive behavioral therapy and like psychodynamic to exist in the same room with the same person. Um, and I think, you know, and then it's also like, okay, what do you want? Like, do you just want to explore? Because psychodynamic is great for just exploring and seeing what's there and trying to understand why things are the way they are. Wanting to make active change in what's presently going on is more cognitive behavior, behavioral therapy. But sometimes even in my CBT work, like some of that psychodynamic work comes in because people do still have a hunger to kind of understand why things are the way they are. We just might not spend 20 sessions exploring mm. it. We yeah. might spend like 15 minutes exploring <laughs> yeah. it for a few different sessions or pointing it out when it comes up. And, you know, where right. do you think that comes from as opposed to just going down whatever path? I can't like I don't have the attention span to just go down paths with people. Yeah. Like we got, we got to be focused. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, on my end, that would be thankful for saving me $2,000 or, or however many 20 weeks of therapy would have been, you know, and that's cause I was seeing a, a cheaper therapist, I think, but. Well, and uh, I, I, at the time or at the time, I'm, I'm thinking back as you're telling me this, that there was a period where I saw the same therapist off and on for 10 years. And I would say of those 10 years, I think I was seeing her for seven and a half to eight of them. And she was this older woman that absolutely represented like a mother figure to me. And I, I loved it. And then once I started going back to school and actually getting my doctorate, I started to realize what was going on in the room and started learning about other therapeutic techniques. And I was like, I actually don't think number one, I'm super busy with school. Like my schedule was insane going to school full-time, getting my PhD and bartending on the weekends, like just insane schedule. And I was like, I don't have 30 minutes to get up here an hour for the session and 30 minutes to leave. Like I just can't do it. Uh, But uh, one part of it too was I understood what was going on more. And I was like, I don't think it's that helpful. She may also have been starting to get Alzheimer's. And I noticed there oh, were a shit. lot of things that she was not remembering. And a few years Is that later, right? Yeah, a few years oh, later, um, one of my friends that had continued to see her was actually like, yeah, she shut her practice down. Oh, no. Had been diagnosed as having Alzheimer's and her memory was starting to go, which like terrible. However, yeah. like... <laughs> Dodge that bullet. I mean, (laughs) well, not dodge that bullet, but I'm also thinking like, wow, I told that person so many things and I'm like afraid that she would tell people, but she probably does not remember them now. Right. Um, Which is like a very like dark way to take it and to think about it. And I do wonder about her. I miss her. Her name was Margaret. (laughs) I had a fish that I named Margaret at one point. Oh, that's very sweet, Tommy. (laughs) Is it? I would come home drunk in my early 20s and talk to it like it was my therapist. (laughs) I love that. Uh, All right. Well, you're an agenda-driven guy. Let's get to the agenda of this interview. Um, The main reason I wanted to have you on, other than the fact that uh, I haven't seen you in a while and just wanted to chat with you... um, Mental health during the pandemic, I can speak for myself, has been um, 
touch and go for I I would imagine a, a major I don't, I don't want to say majority but a lot of people and I think that it's a subject that gets talked about and I think at times it can be sort of a, a nice social media cause people will throw it out there you got to take care of yourself take some breaks take you know mental health check but I think that we're not really fully having because we're still in the pandemic and there might be a light at the end of the tunnel and that's all great and everything this could be a great fun summer all that's great but I don't think that we've begun to have the conversations yet about the long-term ramifications of what could happen to people psychologically. I mean, there are so many factors here. For one, you have to reintroduce yourself back into the world once everything opens up again. I can already tell that my social skills are at best half of what they used to be. I don't make eye contact the way that I used to. I am walking around way more in my own head. I spend so much more time alone that it, it is kind of a battle. It seems to hang on to, uh, some sort of mental, uh, healthy state, uh, mental health state. And I think that people have a lot of questions about what's going on, perhaps what they can do right now to preserve their mental health, what they might be able to do as we start to open up to sort of restore their mental health. Um, And realistically, I, I, I think that there's a lot of things that people have to cope with. And these were things that I did used to talk about. Uh, talk to my therapist about this idea of, of um, there was just a, uh, you're grieving for so much because the minute everything shuts down, you lose an extended period of, of time in your life that especially depending on what age you're at, you know, I was 30 going into my, like my 31st year and for somebody in their late twenties or in their, you're losing a, a certain year of your youth to establish yourself Um and I think that that really is fucking with a lot of people, especially from where I sit in coming from show business and media and all that stuff. Your age is uh, there's so much equity in being like un- 30 or under because you, you're like there's potential there. But the minute you start like there's less potential for somebody who's like 36 and, and in media and hasn't really like had their break yet. You know, and I know a lot of people. I am 36. No, 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 no. But you're established. What are you talking about? You're a fucking doctor. doctor. (laughs) You're right. You have a fucking doctor. What are you talking about? Uh, But uh, so I I wanted to throw a couple. uh, I I have a stat that I wanted to read from the Pew Research Center. And then I just have a whole list of questions of things that I I would just want to see if you can give any insight on um, and help some people that might be listening that are also kind of going through some of the same shit that I'm going through. And perhaps really, this is just a smokescreen, Tommy. I'm trying to get free uh, therapy from you. (laughs) I'm going to ask you all of the questions that I have. (laughs) One thing that I that I want to point out that you've sort of said is like how, you know, how are people handling the pandemic? And ironically, you know, I've heard people say, wow, I wonder how people that already had mental health issues are handling the pandemic. And I'll tell you what, they're fucking fine. (laughs) Yeah. Everybody that already had anxiety and depression still has anxiety and depression. They weren't leaving the house before. They're not leaving the house now. (laughs) They were anxious about social interactions before. They're anxious about social interactions now. The people that I... Uh, that I began seeing around the beginning of the pandemic have progressed in some ways and not in other ways. But initially, like, the pandemic was not a shock. They were like, great. Now I have freedom to not interact with people that I didn't want to interact with before. And it's really the people that were more maybe mentally healthy that are experiencing the more 
uh, the most symptoms that are associated with the pandemic and being inside because they had all of these coping mechanisms before that they didn't realize that they were engaging in or and or they had a lot of distractions and now we're in a world where a lot of those coping mechanisms, if they were healthy, or distractions, if they were not healthy, are taken away. So all the people that thought that they had all their shit together are actually finding out that they don't. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, so you don't, out of all the, obviously, like, I know that, like, you can't, there's only so much you can say, but out of the people that you're seeing, you don't think anybody that has already had some sort of issue has gotten worse? I feel like I have gotten way worse. My, I feel like my anxiety is like 10 times. Cause when you, when it started, I felt the way that you just mentioned where I remember talking to my therapist, like the first couple of weeks where I was like, great, I'm going to just stay inside. I'll play video games. I'll play guitar. I'll read books, like whatever. I'll be fine. And then once I started having to do things that were a little more normal, like I had this really bad panic attack when I was driving sometime in the fall, I was with somebody, I was in the car, I was on the BQE and I was just, I'd never had a panic attack driving before. I've had them doing just about everything else, but I'd never had one driving. And then all of a sudden it happens and I'll be a hundred percent honest. I haven't been, I haven't been 100% comfortable driving a car since October, I, I think partly because I don't really get to drive that much because there's not a lot of places for me to be, but when I am driving, there's times now where I'm like, I, there are things that I, you know, there's certain places I avoid driving, which I know is like a, a big issue, but I, I saw a definite, uh, deterioration just based on the fact that like, I got very comfortable being inside and being alone and whatever. And then reintroducing myself into any kind of like normalcy kind of freaked me out, I think. So I, I think that you know, people are, I mean, this is a fucking old ass analogy, but like people are onions and we are starting to peel back the layers. And I think that the pandemic has pulled back a lot of layers for people. And I think that people that thought that they had their shit figured out are finding out that they don't have it figured out and are being forced to see some of those darker parts of themselves that they've been able to ignore or able to convince themselves that they've worked through. So I wouldn't go, I, I like, I'm, I wouldn't go as far as to really say that like no one that had anxiety or depression, you know, that it hasn't yeah. gotten worse for anyone. Cause How some could you? people yeah. it absolutely has. I'm right. sure. Uh, I would say that most people that are in therapy, probably not getting worse. Most people that are getting, that are getting mental health care are not experiencing more symptoms, maybe for a small period of time in the beginning, because you start talking about things that you haven't been talking about, but long-term for the most part, people who are getting mental health services are not continuing to get worse. Um, but I think that layers have been peeled back for people and things that they thought that they had dealt with, they're finding out that they haven't dealt with. And some of this has to do with being forced to be alone, being forced to spend time with your thoughts, being forced to spend time with yourself. And one of the scariest realizations that someone can come to is when they spend time with themselves and find out, they don't fucking like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. Like, oh, I kind of suck. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like, like I, me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm spending time by myself and I'm not enjoying it. Yeah. Like, that's not entirely the pandemic. Like, yes, we can get bored with what we're doing, but some of that is just that 
you kind of don't like yourself and therefore you don't like to spend time by yourself. So that's a big part of this loneliness that some people are feeling is not just that there aren't other people around, but that there's something lacking and you don't think that you have that thing that's lacking. So when you are by yourself, that thing that's lacking becomes highlighted and you don't want to see it. Yeah. All right. Perfect. I could not have said that better myself because, uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't have said that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Let me throw the stat out and then we'll hit our list. All right. So this is according to the Pew Research Center. Uh, one year into the societal convulsions caused by the coronavirus pandemic, about a fifth of U.S. adults, 21 percent, are experiencing high levels of psychological distress, including nearly three in 10, 28 percent among those who say the outbreak has changed their lives in a major way. So the thing that I want to ask you about first, um, obviously, we talked generally about people's mental health and, and all that stuff. But in terms of just people's general behavior, whether that's risk assessment, decision making, et cetera, how do you think or how do you how are you seeing people react differently, if at all, during the pandemic than as opposed to before? Um, so I think that, so I had this really weird sort of split in my caseload with the pandemic. So when the pandemic started, I was living in Pennsylvania, finishing uh, my internship, which is whenever uh, a clinical psychologist or someone getting a degree in clinical psychology is finishing, they have to do a year long internship where it's a match system, like a medical degree. And, uh, I was living in, in rural Pennsylvania. And the population that I was working with then was very low socioeconomic status. And I mean, people that would sometimes be like, hey, I have a $10 copay. I don't know if I can come next week. And, and that was, you know, that started in March of last year. And I left that internship at the end of June because that had been the one year mark, moved back to New York City, started working at a private practice. The private practice that I'm working at now uh, charges uh, a good amount for individual sessions. So the majority of people that I'm seeing now are pretty high socioeconomic status, pay out of pocket, and are continuing to work through the pandemic. So it's two very different groups of people that I'm dealing with, or that I've dealt with during this pandemic, like a huge split. And I would say that with the the people in Pennsylvania that were of the, the lower socioeconomic status, a lot of it had to do with uh, them not being able to do the things that they're used to doing. I remember working specifically with an older woman who had been engaged in all of these um, exercises at the local pool, had all of these older friends that she would hang out with, had all of these groups that she was part of, and then suddenly that was taken away from her. And that was really difficult for her to manage because she did have all of these healthy coping mechanisms And they were taken away from her. And then she started having all of these thoughts about like, I'm older, I could be towards the end of my life. Uh, What if this is it? How am I going to manage? So she had been forced to kind of recognize that her life may have been, you know, coming to an, an end. And she had been able to kind of ignore that before. I mean, this was someone who was in their upper 70s. So I mean, just objectively, like she's past the halfway point. Yeah, right, right, right. Well, well past it. 
I, I don't think I answered your question. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I, I was waiting for you I, to I, say I more. went off on this and then I forgot. <laughs> sorry. I kind so, of forgot what the original people, question was. <laughs> just like, like, are you seeing a difference in people's behavior? Are they being more erratic? Are they being more like decision making? Are people making more decisions where they're just like, fuck it. I don't, it's a pandemic. I don't know. Uh, I, I think one of the big things, I don't know if I think people are making more rash decisions. I think that there are a couple of things that I see happening. First, people will come in and have uh, done something that they think I will judge. So I went to a party. I know you probably think that's bad, but so they will, will, and I will have not even said anything. They have no idea how I feel about masks or vaccines or the pandemic or or whatever, Um, but they will make this assumption towards what I might think about it. So I, I, I see people kind of thinking a little bit more, I guess, of what I would call globally. So people are being a little bit more aware of how their behavior may impact other people, which I think is great because all of our behavior, everything that we do impacts other people. And I think that this is sort of highlighting that awareness for some people. Um, so I see that happening a lot. I see people... Um, who have uh, issues telling people what they're comfortable with setting boundaries. Uh, So people will say like, I was, you know, I wanted to hang out with people, but they, I know that they don't wear masks. So I wasn't comfortable with it. So I, I lied. I came up with this excuse. So we, we see a lot of conflict avoidance coming up. So where people don't want to say, this is what I'm okay with. This is what I'm not okay with. So that they just try to avoid it. Do, going back to the the conflict avoidance, do you see a lot of relationships deteriorating for, because of that? Even if just friendships or, or, or anything, because people, I, I had arguments with people in my family who were like at, at the at the beginning of this. Not let's just to put it mildly, they weren't mask people, you know. And there were a couple conflicts within the family, you know. Um, are, are you seeing stuff like that? Are people coming in and just being like, I had this, I got had this blowout fight with my mom, and blah 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 blah. Anything like that? Is that common now, or are people just more trying to get out of having the awkward conversations with people that are that they're close to? So I hear mostly about people trying to figure out how they can get out of having these awkward conversations or trying to kind of negotiate like this is what I'm safe with, but that's not what they're safe with. And like, I don't I don't know what to do or the comfortable with not comfortable with. And like, how do I manage that? Um I, you know, I ha- actually haven't heard from a lot of people that they're getting into these like blowout fights, but I think some of that has to do with the population that I'm dealing with because I am working with people that are all like making a good amount of money and established. And I would say that the vast majority, over 90% of the people that I'm seeing are still living in the same place they were living before, still have the same job they had before. Maybe they're just working from home. So they're able to kind of have that distance and it doesn't impact them as much. What I would recommend though, for people who are experiencing that is two things. One, figuring out what are your boundaries? What are you okay with? And what are you not okay with? How do you want to communicate those boundaries to people? Is it that you want to sit down and have a discussion about it? And are you, is the point of that to convince them to also have your boundaries? Or is it to just set your boundaries and be like, this is what I'm doing? What is it going to take for you to say, this is what I'm doing? This is what I'm comfortable with? And people have a really difficult time doing that. 
Uh, yeah, I, I think yeah, <laughs> I think most people, almost everybody, they, w- at least with some person, at least one person in their life, they just can't for whatever reason, you know. And I keep hearing these things. I I, I don't uh, I don't want to throw any. But I heard a, a story of a conflict yesterday that just made my head spin because it was just two people on such different pages. And as the person that was tr- attempting to mediate it, I just remember thinking like, how could this possibly be an issue? But it's because these two people just for whatever reason, there is some sort of um, pull there where this person can't set the boundary with this person for whatever reason. It, uh, you know, there, there's a closeness in the relationship and they just kind of can't do it. It is fascinating. I mean, the human mind and the, the brain is, it's, it is, it's wild. <laughs> well, I also think it's about picking your battles too. So you're talking about this argument. I'm wondering, are these two people that live together or are they two family friends members or, okay. So family, Close members. family members, my uh, mother and son. Okay. Oh, oh mm, this is, yeah. is it you? No, 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 no. It's Let's not just me. Be clear. It's not me. It's not me. No, no, no. Your mom's in the background, like shaking no. her head. No, no. Uh, me and my mom are good for, for right now, at least. <laughs> it's not us. So but, I think yeah. that, you know, there are different ways to approach it. So is it a family member that you're living with that you care about what they think? And I would say that you should come at, come at these sort of conflicts you know, with setting the boundaries and also trying to use your primary emotions if possible, which probably means nothing to you at this point. But <laughs> a primary emotion is happiness, sadness, mm. surprise, uh, anger can be a primary emotion, shame. Um, and there's, I feel like you're giving me the advice. You're like looking at me and like, you really like you, you emphasized shame when you looked at me. (laughs) Oh, I wasn't wasn't trying to, but that sounds like that meant something for you. So maybe we should talk about that. Uh, Whereas your more secondary emotions are things, uh, are things like, um, anger, defensiveness, fear can be a primary emotion. So I think that when you find yourself getting angry and getting defensive, you need to take a step back and say, okay, what am I actually feeling here? Because I'm guessing that when someone is feeling differently about something like a mask, that's actually coming from a place of fear. Yeah, I, I, I think so too. In the, in the case of the argument that I had, it was certainly definitely fear on my end. Cause I, when I, when this happened, I had a lot of family members or I had a lot of friends in the city who were sick. And then this person in my family, it just led to a whole big argument. But, um, while we're on boundaries, let's skip ahead. I had a couple other things. We'll cut, we'll circle back, but, um, Work boundaries. I think it's an especially difficult time for people to set work boundaries. Uh, either you've lost your job and you don't really have to worry about it, or you're perhaps working from home. And I think that there is a it, it's very hard for people to talk to their bosses and sort of unplug at five o'clock. Once that, like, it, it, if this was a regular job, in theory, you work nine to five, you stay till five ish in New York City, you know, five five thirty, and then you bounce, and then you worry about all the rest of the stuff tomorrow. Whereas I feel like now you don't do that. You log on, you roll out of bed. Maybe you're on at nine, maybe, maybe not. And then people are working kind of into the evening, you know, on a, on a daily basis. And I think people are getting burned out. Um, so question one, how do you avoid burnout in this situation? And I think that kind of rolls into one a, which is how do you set a boundary um, with your employer to have a work-life balance while working from home in the pandemic? 
I am probably the worst person to ask this question to. <laughs> oh no, we need your advice, Tony. I, so no, no, no. So let me let me just be clear. Uh, I oof, this is this is a difficult one for me. Uh, so I am working from home. I'm seeing all of my patients virtually. Um, I am full disclosure. I'm on salary because it's my postdoc, and then um, every patient I see over a certain amount of excuse me, over a certain amount of patients, uh, I get, um, I get part of the fee that we charge for. So there is an incentive for me to see more patients and I am in full control of my schedule. So I am not responsible really to my boss for anything because I see almost twice as many patients as what's actually required of me. And that's in part because I really love it. Like I, I'm finally making money for the first time in like seven years after going back to school. Um, and I really enjoy seeing patients. Uh, but if a patient has to cancel and needs to reschedule, I'm also like, yeah, I can see you at 8 a.m. Yeah, I can see yeah. you at 7.30 Squeeze at night. And, and it <laughs> yeah. kind of, it's not a problem for me because I like it. Sure. But when but a patient- But for some people, it can be a problem. Sure. You were going to say something. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say when a patient comes in and they're just like, because this was another thing that I talked about with with my therapist. Too. Again, we're really going back to the list of me just free therapy here. But this was something that I talked to my therapist about where I felt like, uh, you know, my last job that was really um, working me into the ground and then fired me. Um but working me into the ground, especially towards the holiday, I, I couldn't figure out how to have a conversation with them um, about setting some sort of boundary to say like, I have this amount of hours in the day for you. This is when I can get this work done. Uh, and I think that that was coming from a place of fear. Cause I was afraid of getting fired in which I, I did get fired anyway. So it didn't really in the long run, it didn't matter. And they ended up having the conversation with me about work boundaries. <laughs> but, uh, what do you say to somebody when you like, how do you help somebody overcome the fear of, of talking to a boss and saying, I, I need, I can't keep working till eight o'clock at night every single day. I'm, I'm losing my mind. Yeah. So I think some of that is, um, what are you afraid is going to happen? What are you catastrophizing about that? Your boss is going to fire you that if you tell them that you have to set these boundaries, I mean, there, there's a chance there, maybe they will. So then you have to make a decision. Like, do I want to continue to work 60 hour, hour weeks and not say anything, or do I want to risk the chance that they could fire me? Which I'm pretty sure that telling a boss that you are only working the hours that you're being paid to work, what is in your contract, can't lead you to be fired. Perhaps they could like see you as a pain in the ass, and that could make other things more difficult. Um, but I'm pretty sure that you you can't just be fired on the face for that. And I, th- I think one thing you have to remember is that people are going to treat you the way that you tell them they can. So if you have a boss that is saying, hey, I need you to do this, I need you to do this, I need you to do this, you have to from the beginning or at some point say, hey, I'm only here until this time. That's going to take me longer than that. I can realistically get it to you by this date or we can send it to someone else. Like, wh- what do you think would be best? I, I think that I, I think that you have to set that up from the beginning and really in all aspects of your life, like people are going to treat you the way that you say you can be treated. 
So like if you don't stand up for yourself from the beginning or even at a midpoint, you can't continue to get mad that it's happening because you're allowing it to happen. You set that up for yourself. Totally. No, you're 100% right. I mean, yeah, you, you, I get think people are very afraid, especially in this type of economy, to have any sort of backbone in, in that. I, maybe I'm, I shouldn't speak for everybody. I'm speaking for me. <laughs> well, so there are, there are uh, five ways to manage any problem. Okay, so you can tell me. You can, yeah, number one, you can change the situation. Okay. Okay. So you yeah. can change what's going on. Number two, you can tolerate it. Radical acceptance. It's a tolerate. I'm working 70 hours a week right now. I don't want to do it, but I'm just going to muscle through and do it. Okay. You could change how you feel about it. You can try to look at it from a different perspective. Is there something I'm gaining out of this? I have nothing else going on. I'm making more money. I'm getting more experience. How do you want to look at it differently? You can do nothing and stay miserable, which a lot of people want that one. A lot of people want number four. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Or you can do something to make it worse. You can go to your boss and say, hey, fuck you. I'm not doing this. Respect my boundaries. I'm guessing that's probably going to end up making the situation worse. But those are the five things you can do. So, like, what do you want to do? Do you want to try to talk to your boss and change it? Do you want to just learn to tolerate it, accept that it's happening, change how you feel about it, do nothing and stay miserable, or do something to make it worse? Like, that's it. The health situation that comes up in life, those are the five things. Do we say that the healthiest is the thumb? Is the is the uh, talk to your boss and just try to see if there's a reasonable outcome? Not necessarily. It could yeah. be. I would say that, you know, the reason that there's five or that there's these other ones is there may be situations that you can't change. Right. And perhaps you talk to your boss about it and your boss says, I'm really sorry. This is what I need from you right now. Mm. You know, you can either do it or we can let you go. But like, this is what I need. So then you have another decision. Okay, I tried to change the situation that didn't work. How else could I change the situation? You could quit, you could get fired, or you could learn how to tolerate it. You could learn to look at it differently. You know, I mean, that's really it. Like, because none of these things are for sure going to help. A lot Mm -hmm. of people want to change situations. A lot of times when people come to therapy, perhaps they will have a relationship or an issue with a relationship and they'll be thinking like, I'll be like, well, what do you want? Well, I want to change how, how she or he, uh, or non-binary person responds to X, Y, Z. Okay. Well, I, I can't, I can't change that person. I can change, I can help you change what you do. But like, if our goal is going to be to make someone else respond differently, like that, that's out of our control. Right. 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 Well, if if we're giving advice here, listeners, uh, I can tell you if if you're in a bad situation, unemployment right now is pretty sweet. You get that extra <laughs> money coming in from the government is <laughs> not not bad. Well, uh, and people also have a tendency to, when I say catastrophize, like they think of the worst possible thing that could happen. Totally, and don't think of the amount of steps that that would take. So someone might think I could lose my job. I wouldn't be able to get a job. I'm going to get kicked out of my house. I'm going to have to sell all my belongings. I'm going to be living on the street. I'll have nothing to do. I lose my health insurance plus my appendix ruptures all at the same time. (laughs) Yes. And are those things a possibility? Potentially. And maybe if you, if you're really afraid of those things, then maybe the answer is, is you learn how to tolerate this shitty situation for now, or you learn how to look at it differently. Yeah. 
All or you just accept the risk that like, yeah, that could be something that happened. Totally. Tommy, you're very good at this. <laughs> I have to tell you. Uh, all right, moving on to the next one here. Uh, I want to go back to the uh, grieving for the year. This was something that I never thought about, so I talked to my therapist. But it was one of the first conversations we had early on when uh, the shutdown happened. The idea that you're you're grieving the loss of a year, the loss of productivity, the loss of a potential dream. Everything kind of goes on hold. The loss of you know uh, missing your your niece's birthday or your 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 mother's birthday or because you can't be in the same room with them. Um, how are you or have you been helping people cope with the loss of a, a year? That honestly has not come up that much in my work. Interesting. And so I, I, I saw, um, you know, I, you, you sent me like, Hey, these are things we might go over. Um, and I saw that on there and I was like, Oh, that's interesting because I, have not dealt with that very much. And I don't, and I think part of it has to do with the, again, the population that I'm working with just being such high functioning people and mostly adults that, uh, not that you're not an adult. I understand uh, that this Tommy, is really I... something that has come up for you. Uh, it's a struggling artist thing. It's a, it's a, <laughs> Oh my God, I haven't made it yet. And now I lose another year. <laughs> well, and I think that God, I, some of that I think is sort of the illusion of what a year means. Okay. Yeah. Of, of that, like a year was this thing and maybe this could have been my year. Right. And now that thing has been taken away from me and oh my word, what am I going to do? And uh, I think that it really highlights this concept of time that we have as a culture and as a society. And I think if anything, whether this year has been taken from you or given to you, I think that there's a different way to frame it. I I think it's almost impossible for anyone to have gone through this year and not learned something about themselves. And I think that a lot of the things that we chase after, especially when it comes to career or a career in the entertainment industry, is always like, I'm going after something that's going to validate me. And now that that thing has been taken away from me for a year, what am I going to do to validate me? What am I going to have to do to face now? And people don't want to face that. So we look at it as these 365 days have been taken away from me as though you haven't ever wasted 365 days before. Yeah, I know. Me personally, absolutely. I, I, nobody can waste time better than I can. Uh, let's be 100% honest. <laughs> we can all waste time. Yeah. And I think if you have been someone who has maybe looked at this year and been like, oh, this year has been such a waste, I think that says a lot about kind of how you view things and how you look at the year and what your approach to things is. And maybe this, just you recognizing that you have spent this year thinking about how you've wasted the year is enough. Maybe that's enough for you to recognize, oh shit, I look at things that way. Mm. Maybe looking at things that way isn't helpful. God. All right. <laughs> I mean, so right. No, you're what, right. I'm not saying, you, I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm just, uh, this is like profound is all I'm saying. Well, I mean, maybe you needed that year to, to have recharge. shit not happen, to kind yeah. of well recharge or just notice like, hey, it's over. This was a <laughs> shitty year and like I still survived. Like I'm still okay. Things are not right. where I wanted them to be. But to be honest, the year before things really weren't where I wanted them to be either. 
And maybe I just need to reflect on the fact that like, shit's not where I want it to be. What am I going to do about it? Tommy, I'm telling you one day you are going to be like selling out like convention centers <laughs> fucking like selling selling you're gonna sell like a 10 10 million books <laughs> i God, can just I fuck, see I it in the future so. <laughs> uh, I, i'm glad i'm in on the ground floor because this is <laughs> I, this is amazing um all right so let's move into relationships i know i don't want to keep you the whole night i know we've already been doing this for like a, a minute here but it's I a gotta... two-parter folks <laughs> let me pour another glass of wine we can, we can go until midnight <laughs> all right uh Making friends in a pandemic. Is it possible? Uh, are people coming to you wondering how to do that? I know that relationships are fraying at this at this point, and I know that a lot of people feel lonely generally. With some relationships sort of fizzling out, given the fact that, let's be honest, if you haven't seen somebody for a year and you haven't really talked to them that much, and you maybe considered them a even semi-close friend before this, maybe maybe that is over, you know? And people are going to get to a point, I think, where they're going to need to make new friends. Is this something that you've seen from people? And do you have any advice on how to do it in a pandemic? So that is, uh, so that's something that I've sort of been recognizing in myself is that I have, uh, before the pandemic, I would have been like, I have 50 close friends. And I would be like, oh, these are people that I probably text with on a weekly basis. And some of those people I have not talked to in a year. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm really not that close with that person or they'll come back into my life and that's okay. But there's still a core, I would say 10 people that I have kept in touch with probably daily. Um, maybe not daily, bi-daily, uh, a couple times a week. And I think that, it, you know, I, I was actually kind of wondering myself, like, okay, is this part of the pandemic? Is this partially being in my mid thirties and finishing school and just noticing that I'm sort of pruning away some of the, some of the friendship flowers that are no longer blooming or, or what exactly is going on here? And I think that, I think that this is a time where you can really reflect on like, okay, who do I need in my life and who do I not need in my life? And yeah, again, this sense of loneliness, like, okay, what is it that I think I'm missing that I need these other people for? Do I have people in my life because I need them, because I need them to distract me, because I need them to validate me, because I need them to make me feel more comfortable with myself? Or do I have them in my life because I genuinely like them, because I genuinely think that they add something the more complicated question, I think, is how do you make new friendships during a pandemic? Yeah, you can't just join a volleyball league or, you know, or trivia night or something. So one of the things that I did is I started playing an online role playing game, an MMORPG, a Ooh. massive multiplayer online role playing game. I forgot you're a gamer. I uh, I found one person that plays uh, Final Fantasy fourteen. This okay. game has no end, uh, <laughs> and I started playing it with a group of seven people that I did not know six of them before. And now two nights a week we meet on Discord with our headphones, with our microphones. We do dungeons together. We explore things together. We chat the entire time. I have made this new group of friends that I did not know that I had before. 
There are other online um, gaming platforms that you can just go on and play with random people. There's this amazing app called House Party that you can, yeah. uh, you and your friends can download that you can play games together. They can invite other people to join. I think uh, getting involved in other social circles is a great way to do it. People are doing online happy hours. Uh, there are other sort of like um, social mixing events that you can get involved in. Some of this does require you to be a little bit curious, to face some of your social anxiety, to allow yourself to interact with people that you don't know, even if it's through a screen. I think you need to get out. I think you need to go for walks. I think you need to go to grocery stores and fucking say hi to people. Even if you're in a mask, like these are little interactions that you have to take advantage of. And you really have to step outside of your comfort zone because that worst thing that you think is going to happen is probably not going to happen. And guess what? If it does, probably not as bad as you thought it was going to be. Agreed. Do do you think that the, that, uh, virtual relationships have the same sort of, um, uh, give you the same sort of uh, dopamine hit or or whatever you're gonna have to. You're the actual doctor here, but uh, do they have this? Do they equate to the same type of relationship as something in person? So I think that whether meeting online or meeting in person. Um, we assume a lot about other people. And that's one of the reasons that we think people are so great after first dates, because we haven't really gotten to know them. We, yeah, we see what we want to see. And we project onto them the things that we don't see that we hope are there. And I think that that happens both in person and online. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure what, what more I kind of have to say about that. I, I mean, I think that there's a certain amount of like being with someone that is different than seeing them in person. And I think that those are... Those are risks that you have to decide about what you're okay with. I think that if you are someone who is concerned about COVID, that it makes more sense to talk to someone via webcam and and see who they are, see if it's worth, you know, meeting them in person, going on a walk outside, uh, meeting for coffee outside, having dinner outside uh, before you decide that you want to go inside with them. Mm. Uh, I, I think that you have to be creative about it and how you can spend time together going inside with somebody these days. It's a big step. I mean, Huge I step. <laughs> I think it is. I did. I'm not making fun of you. I'm saying it is. It's just hilarious that that's like where we're at. It's like, Oh, do you want to, do you want to like step inside and have a glass of water? It's like a huge commitment, you know? Well, I, and I think that this is, so a lot of the research that I did uh, in graduate school had to do with uh, HIV and STIs. And a lot of that is about negotiating risk. And this is the same type of thing as you're making a risk assessment about what are you comfortable with and what are you not comfortable with? And instead of it being a condom, it's a mask. And and people have have a difficult time having discussions around sex and their sexual health. And people are also having similarly difficult discussions around their physical health when it comes to wearing a mask and not wearing a mask. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, All right, let's stick with these relationships here. What's the... Do you have any advice for keeping a romantic relationship healthy if you're quarantined with them? 
Uh, yeah, spend less time with them. <laughs> uh, I would actually say that for any relationship in general. Um, I don't actually mean like spend less time with your partner, but I think that it's very important during a pandemic or not during a pandemic that you have a life outside of your relationship. You should not expect to get everything that you want or need from your partner. Like, that is insane. The idea that one person is going to be able to meet every single need that you have is fucking ridiculous. You need to get a life. You need to have a life outside of your partner. And and it, I, I mean, and, and that could be anything. Maybe that is having a Netflix party with your friends where you're watching the same movie and talking and your partner's not there. Like you have to be interacting with other people outside of your partner. That means getting out of the apartment. That means going to get coffee, trying to get dinner with friends outside if you can, like doing anything that you can because that person cannot become your life. And if that person becomes your life, you are not going to be happy regardless of how good your relationship is because it's just a ridiculous thing to want and expect from someone else. It just is. Passionate. It is. It, it's insane. Um, I have not met I have not met anyone that I think like loves being around their partner 100% of the time and is being honest about that love. Like spending 24-7 with anyone is going to drive you fucking crazy because people are innately crazy and do shit that's going to piss you off no matter how much you love them. Perfect. Perfect advice. I love it. Like if you can't spend 24 seven with yourself without getting annoyed, how can you expect someone else to spend 24 seven with you and not get annoyed? Uh, Totally. I'm with you, man. Uh, all right, let's move to breakups. Best way to get over a breakup. Uh, if you break up with somebody in quarantine, uh, tough one. Yeah. Um, I can tell you from my personal experience that it is it's it's tough because you can't do there is no um there's no instant rebound. I, I don't know if uh, I don't know remember the last time we talked but like my relationship ended and like for real in probably May end of April of last year. And he and was then, a great guy. <laughs> <laughs> Zing. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, I, just, I had to throw Mike Coscarelli's gay joke in there somewhere. If I didn't get it in, you were going to be disappointed. It wouldn't be my podcast if somebody wasn't calling me gay. <laughs> um, but we broke up and then I figured when I got back to the city and I moved, I sort of like started my new life in July and I, I, I moved into a new place and came back to Brooklyn and all that stuff that I was kind of like, I'm back, single mic, back, whatever. And then I learned very quickly that you don't really... I feel like everybody's different. I personally kind of feel like I needed to have like a period of rebounding that I don't know that I fully got. I I got myself like in shape and I feel like mentally I was really good when I got back to the, to the city for the summer kind of ready for that. But then once you start dating, at least this was last summer, you start realizing that it's not, you're not going to be going on like multiple dates a week or you shouldn't be going on multiple dates a week with different people, uh, which was, is kind of like, can be the medicine sometimes, you know? Um, well, so tell me about that medicine. What yeah. is that rebounding actually doing for you? I, I think if I actually had to think about it from a constructive place, I think that it's about getting confidence back. At least yeah. that's how it kind of felt for me where yeah, I was in a place. Validation. Yeah. 
Totally. That's why I was I was hitting the selfie game really hard. I was all over Instagram posting very handsome pictures and uh, you know hot gay comedy pictures and, and all that stuff. And uh, there was you could tell that there was like a level of thirst from mm-hmm. I don't know July till October probably. Yeah. So you, you know? distract yourself and you go for validation because those are things that in the short term make you feel good. So you go after that thing that has a short term pro. And a long-term con, the long-term con being that when you feel down, you learn like, hey, if I take this selfie or if I go on a date with someone or someone fucks me, then I'm going to feel better about myself and I'm going to feel validated and then everything's going to be great. So you get stuck in this loop of how honestly what it is, is how can I use other people to feel better about myself? I mean, if we, if we were going to label it as something, that's really what it is. It's not we about the other it, yeah. person at all. It's no. how can that other person make me feel? So yes. again, this comes back to you not knowing how to make yourself feel good. Well, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> this is, this is for, we're talking just me. This was a period of time. I was just saying that, like, I think that that's people's. Yes, I understand what you're saying. And I think that you're obviously right. But I think that that is like the that is the that's almost the expectation when you get out of a relationship any other time. You kind of like you get back out there, you do this and that. And then like eventually you land in a place where you're healthy enough to actually get back into another meaningful relationship with somebody where you yeah, can actually you, you be an distract equal partner. yourself from your emotions until they go away. Sort of. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm saying it, it. I'm sure that the way I'm saying it is coming off as very judgmental. Don't get me wrong. I've done all of these things yeah. from a societal perspective. Like it's totally normal. Yeah. This is what people do just because it's what people do. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually that healthy or actually that helpful. It's a fair point. Uh, you know, but it does it work? Sure. It eventually <laughs> works. But every time you go through a breakup, that's the pattern that you go through. Right. Because you're not managing or dealing with the fact that, and when I say you, I mean the collective the, you. Yeah. yeah. You, the like royal you. Really, yes. Is uh, what you're not dealing with is the fact that you think you need someone else to validate you and and let you know that you are worth being with and that you are loved and that you are cared cared for because you don't believe it enough on your own because you don't actually believe that you are enough to be loved and taken care of you have to have someone else tell you that you deserve it or that you're worth it so what's the healthy step to get there then uh like you said you just said that the the unhealthy step does work. Yeah. So you have to, you have to treat yourself like you are someone that you're in love with. You have to do the shit for yourself that you would do for someone else that you really cared about. You have to take yourself to a nice dinner. You have to buy yourself flowers. You have to fuck your own brains out. You know, (laughs) you have to spend time with yourself and love yourself for who you are. Like you literally need to start dating yourself because you have to fall in love with you. I don't necessarily think that you have to love yourself in order to love someone else. I think that like you can both be messed up and the ways that you're messed up just happen to mix real well together and Uh you mesh that way like two fucked up Tetris pieces. (laughs) Uh, And that can totally work. Like you have to, you know, find someone that matches your crazy. Um, are you, you are a believer in that? 
Uh, I mean, I think that that can work. I think that there can be dysfunctional relationships that are totally functional because they're both just fucked up in the same way. <laughs> okay, good. Don't I, necessarily I thought... think it's healthy, but I right. think it can be functional. There's a difference between functional and healthy. Yeah. Um, it's like driving a car from 1996 that can get you to where you got to go, but yes. it's not quite... It's not comfortable. Well, and this comes back to, to, you know, the world treating you or people treating you the way that you tell them they can treat you. And part of the way that people know how to treat you is by them seeing how you treat yourself. So if you treat yourself like a piece of shit, people are like, oh, they can be treated like a piece of shit. So I'm going to treat them that way. If you treat yourself like you are a precious object, People are going to treat you like you're a precious object because you've set that precedent that that's what you expect. And you're going to stand up for yourself when people don't treat you that way. So you have to learn how to treat yourself that way. So people need to be taking themselves on dates. People need to be not distracting themselves, spending time with themselves, falling in love with the things that they're embarrassed of, falling in love with, with the fact that they're a dork. I'm a precious object. I love it. <laughs> you right. are, Mike. I, I know. Listen, I know that. We both know that. <laughs> Come on. Come on now, Tommy. We know. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, how do you... I, again, I know that you're dealing with a certain, at this point, certain type of income um, uh, level, but how do you? how would you deal with a client who comes to you and has lost the job in this uh, pandemic in a down economy. How do you not internalize that? And how do you not get down on the fact that you lose a job? Cause I know that that's like a lot of people are dealing with that right now. So, uh, so how do you not get down on losing a job? I would argue that maybe it's okay to get down about losing a job. Okay. You know, when, when someone dies, not that I'm saying that dying and losing a job is the same thing, but losing a job could very much feel like a loss, like grieving. You could lose a job and still go through the the, the um, stages of grief, absolutely. Uh, I would say, okay, is it worth grieving right now and is that okay? Have you been grieving for a week or have you been grieving for three months? If you're still grieving for three months, then that might be something that we need to examine more. If you just got fired yesterday and you're coming in, yeah, you're going to be upset and that's okay. So some of it is processing what happened and accepting what happened and then deciding what it is that you want to do moving forward. So it's sort of that immediacy that's the difference between I just got fired versus I haven't had a job for three months and I can't get a job and I'm out of my mind. What am I going to do? So that can be more about troubleshooting. What are the options that you have? What are things that you can do? Because in this economy, yeah, it's possible that you could lose your job, not be able to pay your rent, get evicted. Like that is happening to people. And I think that then that comes more into play of, okay, what do we need to do to change the situation? Like that, that runs into that five ways to solve a problem. Number one, what do we need to do to change the situation? How can you get a job? How can we get you money? Who can you move in with? What things could you possibly sell if this needs to happen? So that could come down to like, okay, this fucking sucks, but what do we got to do? Whereas if it's just grieving the loss of a job, maybe they need to grieve it for a week. Maybe they need, they need to grieve it for two weeks. 
then maybe we can get down to helping you get a resume out. So some of the work that I do can come down to troubleshooting. It doesn't always have to be about the emotional state that someone is in. Interesting. Okay. Helpful. Um, Here's an interesting one. This is one that I've been noticing is tough. Do you have any thoughts on how to restore someone's attention span after a year of pretty much doing nothing but looking but at three different screens the entire day? Phone, laptop, back to Netflix, phone, laptop, back to Netflix. It just seems like it is impossible to like really sit, lock in and focus on something. Even again, going back to like my thing with the driving, I really think that part of the issue is that going on a drive where I have to pay attention to the road for like 30 minutes at a time is like kind of hard at this point. So, you know, I would, I would actually need to see some research that shows that it's any different than before. I mean, before the pandemic, were people not on their phone and had Netflix on at the same time? I mean, were people not trying to talk to someone and watch something and scroll Instagram at the same time? Like, I feel like the, I mean, it is a fact that the attention span by generation is getting shorter and shorter. I mean, yeah. we look at TikTok now. What are they? Two second videos? They're, they're very then, short. Yeah, you know, they're like really they're, short. I think they're fifteen <laughs> seconds or something. Like, yeah. And and people are like, oh, it's been three seconds. I'm not entertained yet. Next. Yeah. So I mean, I don't I don't know how much the pandemic has actually impacted some people's attention spans. However, I would say if you are noticing that you're having a lower attention span, what are you avoiding? What are you running from that you have to or you feel the need to change what it is that you're doing every 20 seconds? What is it that you are so fucking afraid of that you have to be distracted that much? Interesting. That's the real issue is that you want to be distracted from something. What are you hiding from? Interesting. Is that really what attention span usually comes down to? I don't, so I wouldn't say that all attention span comes down to that. Yeah. But I would say that in, in the era of a pandemic where we have so many different things and if this has changed, yeah, what are you hiding from? What are you afraid of? I think for people that are, you know, over 30, 30 and over, that if you've seen a huge change in your attention span since the pandemic, that's because you're fucking hiding from something. If you are under 30, like you've probably had this sort of attention span for a long time and maybe just noticing it more now because you have more time, because maybe you're spending more time watching TV or going back and forth. Uh, but if you've reached a certain age, like this has more, I, I think that this probably has more to do with what it is that you're hiding from or avoiding as opposed to actually having a shorter attention span. Interesting. That's food for thought of of wanting to expand that though. Yeah. Fucking challenge yourself. Yeah. You know, notice to focus. Yeah. Notice I'm watching Netflix right now and I'm putting my phone in the other room or I'm setting my phone over here. Notice when you have that impulse to look at your phone, try to stop yourself, see how long you can go. Can you only go a minute? Okay. Start there. Can you go five minutes? Start there. Can you go 10? Start there. Can you make it through a whole movie? You know, start trying to to expand that attention span so that you're not doing these multiple things at the same time. And over time, you will be able to, or you will notice that an emotion and a memory comes up that you were trying to avoid, and then you can manage that. Amazing. That's a brilliant advice. Brilliant. I don't I don't know that people 
do that. I don't think people, older people, I don't think my parents have an issue with like staring at their phones. My mom can put her phone, but I can tell you that like, I look at myself, my sisters, my, you know, I think that it's a, it's very tough for people these days to just like put their phone away, even yeah. just like going to sleep or whatever. It's like, I, I, I honestly, I'm looking at my phone until I am, I'm like, Ooh, all right, time to go. To, you know what I mean? Like until I'm like pulling the cover over my head to go to sleep. I, I have like my fucking phone in my face, you know? And you will be a, amazed at the things that you become aware of when you start to take those distractions away. Yeah, it's a good place to start. Um, one really cool thing that you can do as an exercise, if you would like to be more connected to the present moment so that you're not distracted and all over the place, is there's a um, there's a distress tolerance skill uh, grounding exercise called the five senses. And I teach this to a lot of my patients. Um, but look around the room and notice five details. So for example, Mike, I am looking behind you right now and I see that there are... Uh, Two or three liquor bottles. I believe yep. one of them looks like a Stoli bottle, yep. <laughs> a regular vodka Stoli bottle. And I think the green one might be whiskey. Um, There's a whiskey. I, yeah. So I, I bartended for 15 years. So I, I got this. Um, so I might say like, I noticed that there's a bottle behind you that has a right, uh, uh, a red lid. I noticed that you have two pieces of hair that are kind of falling forward in the front. I noticed that there is sort of a blue glare in your glasses that are you know, probably the computer screen. Uh, you, you name five things. So five things you see, four things you can physically feel. If I bring my attention to my toes right now, I can feel my socks on them. If I bring uh, my attention to the, the heels of my feet, I can feel uh, the hard floor. Uh, if I bring my attention to my fingers, I can feel my, my facial hair. Uh, then three things that you can hear. I hear like an ambient white noise. Oh, oh, yeah, oh. I, I hear you doing that. <laughs> um, you know, then you do two things that you can smell, one thing that you can taste. And what this does is you use your five senses to ground into the present moment and to notice what is going on around you. Because so often we are not connected to the world as it is, as it's happening. We are connected to our cell phone in our hand and flipping through a screen. We don't use those other senses. We see the visual, maybe the sound if you have the sound on. And we disconnect from those other four things, those other ways that we take in the world. So take time, go for a walk outside, use your five senses. Just keep going through five, four, three, two, one. And you will have an entirely different experience. Do it when you're making the bed. Do it when you're doing the dishes you will have a visceral experience that is different than one that you have experienced before in doing that same activity. I'm going to put that on like a, like a, like a voice memo and just carry it in my pocket. <laughs> God knows I'm going to need that moving forward. <laughs> uh, all right. Last thing. And then we can wrap up because you have been very gracious with your time and I very much appreciate it. Um, in general, do you think that the country, the workforce, society overall um, prioritizes mental health enough? We, we kind of talked about it a little bit when we started, uh, how it's it's becoming, you know, sort of like a, there's some social media advocacy around it. But I still think that there are – I don't know that professionally it's something that is really considered it, – it's in the it's in the background, but I don't, I, I don't feel like it is – a priority the way that it probably should be. Do you? 
overall, there is a ton of stigma around mental health and people do not prioritize it the way that they should. Uh, and part of the reason I say that is that from my perspective, from a cognitive behavioral perspective, um, the, the basic model for CBT is that we have an event that happens. We have an emotion because of that event. Because of that, we have thoughts about what's happening. We have sensations that we feel in our body. And then we have a behavior that we engage in to deal with that event that happened. So, so much of what's happening to us comes down to our appraisal of what is happening. That is why someone can die and one person can be devastated and another person can be happy. That person that's devastated is thinking about all the reasons they missed that person. The person that's happy is thinking about how much of a fucking bastard that asshole was that died. Right. Right. So same <laughs> right. event happens. Appraisal of the event is different, which leads people to have a different experience. So what people don't recognize is that going throughout the world, they have these patterns. They have patterns of thinking that dictate how they see the world and they have sensations that they experience that dictate how they feel moving throughout the world some people notice their sensations first other people notice their physical or their uh their thought patterns first either way you can intervene on both of those things or either of those things because it's going to directly impact your behavior and your behavior is how you interact with the world so literally, you can go to a therapist and change your entire perception of the world and thereby how you interact in it. So if you are not living a happy life in the way that you want to live it, that's your own fault. And our society does not, um, does not help people to understand that they can make the changes that they need to to be happy because we see needing to make a change as being weak. Oh, you can't hack it. You can't deal with this. You can't deal with, with how you're feeling. So you need this other thing. There must be something wrong with you. And that's a bunch of bullshit. Literally, how you think and the sensations you experience dictate how you live your life the things that you do. So to not engage in a process that could help you to change that is fucking insane. Mm. Like, fine, stay miserable. How's <laughs> it working for you? Right, right. Keep, keep doing the same thing that you've always been doing and everything's going to stay the same way. Stop blaming everyone else and everything else because your life isn't changing. You're not doing the things that you could be doing. And part of that is because people don't want to admit that they're not doing things they could be doing. Everybody wants to think that they're doing everything that they possibly can. And the world is just an unfair place. Yeah. And yes, the world is an unfair place, but you can still do shit about it. Yeah. I'll tell you what, Tommy, you're very good. You're very good. <laughs> uh, I, I think that that's all I got. You answered all my questions and, uh, you know, you did a, an awesome job. I knew you'd be great on you exceeded my expectations. I knew you were going to be good. You were like A+. Plus. Um, Thank you. And, and might I throw out there that even if you didn't tell me that, I'd still think it. <laughs> I'm okay. high self-esteem. I, I don't really get lonely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, God, to and live in Thomas Whitfield's head. I think I'm head. so great. It's because I think I'm a fucking dork 
and a loser, but I kind of like that I'm a dork and a loser and I'm kind of okay with it. <laughs> you're a, you're not, well, I mean, you're a dork and a loser in the sense that you are a, a smart guy with, with, um, cerebral interests, but you're far from a dork and a loser. Um, where can the people find you? Instagram, Twitter, whatever you want to plug. Yeah. So you can follow me on Instagram at T Whitfield PhD. It is a private account. So you will have to send a request, but I will accept you. I have it set that way because, uh, working for a private practice, don't want my patients to be able to follow me. Uh, just kind of, I don't fucking care. It's set up by the private practice. I would let any of them follow me and not care. I'm not allowed yeah. to. Um, so you can follow me at T Whitfield PhD. I also have a podcast with uh, Mr. Justin Perez, who you know, called The Obsessibles, where each week we force one of our obsessions on the other person. I wanted to do something that was going to be fun and have nothing to do with psychology, but because so much of my life is based around psychology, it a lot of times comes back to psychology. Yeah. It it just happens. Um, Why mess uh, with can, success? Yeah, I mean, yeah, is it? Um, <laughs> you can also follow follow me on Twitter, T Whitfield PhD. But really, Instagram is uh, the best place to to catch all my shit there. <laughs> Beautiful. Tommy, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it, man. You, you, this was, I think this is actually going to help a lot of people. This was a great conversation and you were, I mean, you're such a smart guy. I, I, I'm, 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 very I'm nice glad I have you as a resource. That. I really do. <laughs> Don't right. take advantage. I won't trust me. <laughs> Listen, uh, folks, thank you so much for listening. You can follow me at Mike Coscarelli. You can follow my associate producer, Ronnie side at Ronnie side on Instagram as well. Please rate review and subscribe to the show. Like you always do tell a friend if you haven't already, and I will see you next week with another guest until then. Bye. Mike Coscarelli Rules is hosted by Mike Coscarelli. Executive producer, Mike Coscarelli. Supervising producer, Mike Coscarelli. Associate producer, Ronnie Side. Edited by Mike Coscarelli. Sound design by Mike Coscarelli. Podcast and social artwork by Chris Cheney. Special thanks to all the losers and the haters. <laughs> <laughs>